The first of our special episodes with the candidates for mayor of Cleveland have started publishing. We had Zach Reed on Saturday, Kevin Kelly yesterday, and later today it'll be Sandra Williams. All six will be published by Thursday. Give them a listen if you're going to be casting a ballot. So this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Laura Johnston, Layla Tassi, Jane Cahoon. We have a full house for one day, and then we won't be full again, I think, until Thursday. Hope you all had a grand weekend. Of course. It was fantastic. Lovely. Laura had her 40th birthday a year and a half late at a swimming pool. Hey, and I went down the slide, and so did my 67-year-old almost mother. So, you know, it was a good time. And- Layla, you went down a few slides. You spent the weekend That's out right. at uh, Cedar, Cedar Point. Point. Yeah, and, and the water park, which uh, I'd never been to, and it was uh, it was terrific. Really great time. All right, well, Jane, I, I had a more subdued weekend. I hope you had an enjoyable <laughs> time as well. Yes, I certainly did. Let's no begin. water slides, though. No, me neither. <laughs> what are former judges and social activists saying about the hugely disparate sentences given to a white woman and a black woman last week in Cuyahoga County Common Pleas Court? Layla Latassi, this did strike us as outrageous when it happened. We were talking about it immediately. A white woman, Chagrin Falls clerk, stole a quarter of a million dollars over 20 years, doesn't go to jail. A Maple Heights clerk who stole $40,000 does. What is the upshot? Right. Well, well, first of all, in my opinion, they both deserve to go to jail. I think that's uh, that, that was part of our conversation last week. We were really stunned at, at the, the sentencing of the the woman from Chagrin Falls. So Corey Schaefer spoke to leaders of black faith organizations, labor organizations, current and former judges and social activist groups. And they all said that this stark difference between the sentences damaged the credibility of the criminal justice system and just enforced the feeling that judges disproportionately punish people of color or people without means. And the two cases were just stunning in their disparity. One was a white woman who was a clerk Uh, working for the village of Chagrin Falls, who had developed the system for stealing cash that residents brought in to pay their water bills and then cooking the books so no one noticed for 20 years. And she stole $250,000 that way. The other case was a black woman who worked as a secretary at Maple Heights schools and stole $40,000 from a a fund that was meant for for students. They were things like fees that students were paying and that kind of thing. The white woman who stole considerably more money got three years probation because the judge said that she paid the money back from her pension. And the black woman got 18 months behind bars because the judge said she liquidated her pension so it couldn't be seized. But her explanation for that was that she needed the money because she had none and needed to pay her bills after she lost her job at the schools. But the two cases just a day apart in court, caught everyone's attention. The folks Corey spoke to are are calling for reform, and they agree that a statewide sentencing database, such as the one that's being piloted right now, is the first step towards shining a light on these disparities. It would really help us pinpoint where sentencing guidelines allow for such a thing and, and how they can be corrected. The goal is really for people who commit similar crimes to be sentenced more similarly. Unfortunately, though, only 10 of Cuyahoga County Common Pleas Court's 34 judges have said that they plan to sign on to this pilot program. So, I mean, how much of a look are we actually going to get? How, how, how uh, you know, reliable will that data be? I, I don't know. But, uh, but yeah, this, this, this case really brought into the fore the importance of, of that database. 
Well, let's point out that the judge who did sentence somebody to prison time, Rick Bell, is in the pilot. But the judge who let that woman off with nothing, uh, Holly Gallagher, is not. You know, I had a couple people try to argue over the weekend. This isn't about race. This is about restitution. And there's two things about that. Paying back the money doesn't change the fact that you committed the crime. And that is a bogus argument to insert race into the sentencing, because let's face it, if you're in poverty, you're not going to be able to make restitution in Cuyahoga County. Black people make up a significant portion of those in poverty. So right off the bat, if you use restitution as a reason not to put people in jail, you're putting more black people in jail. I, I also I don't get it. She stole for 20 years. And the only reason she got caught is she got promoted, came back to fill in for a week, stole again, and was caught by her replacement. How do you not issue a real penalty? Right. I, I, I wanted to research this before the podcast. I didn't have time. Is there any way the prosecutor, Michael Malley, could appeal that sentence, force it back oh. before the judge, because she would be under significant pressure now not to just give her a slap on the wrist. That's a, a fascinating question. Did you find anything in your research? That no, I haven't had a chance answer? to look it oh, up. I, I thought just... you said you did. Um, no, but I agree with you completely that restitution and punishment are completely different. That was the argument that the prosecutors were making when the Chagrin Falls clerk was before the judge. What's interesting, I think, would be if these two cases were before the same judge, how would they have shaken out? And I think that's exactly what this database is, is supposed to drill into, is that over time, because if both cases were before Rick Bell, I would venture a guess that both would have ended up behind bars. But but, you know, I guess we'll we'll see in time well, how, how the database, what, what it tells other- us. The other problem with the Chagrin Falls case was that the woman had ties to law enforcement. She's married to law enforcement. She's uh, her. I think her father was a police officer Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. that might have figured in. And again, Holly Gallagher should be ashamed of herself if that's what she did. That's not an appropriate reason to not send somebody off. She stole from the village for 20 straight years. And another point to your case, to the to the point you made about about money and how that plays into this. The woman in Chagrin Falls could afford to hire one of the best criminal defense attorneys in, in Cleveland, Ian Friedman, who tried to I mean, he did everything he could to to get her the lightest possible sentence. So, um, I mean, if you've ever seen Ian Friedman in the courtroom, you know. <laughs> so uh, um, so that, too, you know, how how much justice can you afford? That has always played into the criminal justice system here. Well, it's good to see the outrage. It'll be interesting to see whether Holly Gallagher now volunteers for that pilot program, given the shameful sentence that she issued. It's this week in the CLE. How are revelations about Sam Randazzo receiving millions of dollars from First Energy, including a $4.3 million bribe, landing with consumer advocates who are upset with the state's Public Utilities Commission that Randazzo headed up? Jen Kuhn, we got a good story out of this over the weekend by Andrew Tobias that really drilled into some of the issues with how people get put onto this commission. Right. And, you know, the consumer advocates have long criticized this this process for selecting commissioners. But, you know, the case of Randazzo really brought it sharply into focus because, as you said, First Energy admitted bribing him with four point three million dollars just before Governor Mike DeWine gave him this job as as PUCO chair. So now 
this has just renewed the calls to reform this process, including maybe proposing that that we elect this commission or or taking some other steps to try to limit the influence of utilities. But uh, to remind people, Randazzo disclosed that that he had made money through a couple of companies he owned um, by consulting. But you know, Governor Dewine said he didn't know that First Energy had paid him. You know, not only this four point three million dollar bribe, but a total of more than twenty million dollars over over the previous uh, decades. So, since all of this came to light, Dewine has named a new chair to replace Randazzo, uh, Jennifer French, who was a judge, and reappointed one of the current commissioners, Dennis Dieters. So, Dewine's spokesman said he took a little more care this time around, and it was more robust given what happened in the scandal. But, um, and unlike Randazzo's hiring, these two folks were from the public sector. So I guess that didn't, um, you know, that made things a little bit easier. And, but still, he didn't literally ask them like, hey, what did you make? Did you make, you know, money from outside sources? I was mind boggled by that. They're arguing, well, they came from the public sector, so it's different. So what does it hurt to ask? How much, if anything, have the utilities that I'm asking you to regulate put into your pocket over the last 10 years? Why wouldn't you ask that <laughs> given the 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 singeing you've just suffered because of Rondazzo? I was stunned. I, I, that was the Well, the... both of them were judges actually before they came onto the PUCO and so judges really according to the canons, you know, they're not supposed to have like They're not supposed to. Jobs, so. But why not ask? <laughs> why not ask? So, but um, just to explain the process a little bit so people can judge for themselves. The the PUCO has five members. The governor picks them from a list that's provided by this 12-member nominating council. And that's supposed to create like a layer of independence and and maybe public involvement because it, it, this nominating council includes the consumers council, who's the you know state consumer watchdog, the president of the accountancy board of Ohio, the uh, chair of the state board of registration for professional engineers, president of the Ohio Bar Association, and president of the Ohio Municipal League. But the governor appoints five additional positions and the leaders of the House and Senate controlled also by his party, each get to appoint an additional member. So just for example, the chairman of the council is a guy who's a former first energy lobbyist that DeWine appointed. So, you know, that doesn't inspire confidence that, you know, about the influence of utilities. So it's no surprise that the consumer count, the consumer advocates say that this council is, is tilted against consumers and in favor of utilities. It, it was created in 1982 as an alternative to a failed ballot initi- initiative that would have made the commissioners elected. So, you know, people like Bruce West and the Ohio Consumers Council say this process has just been a dismal failure. He said, now the first energy is charged with a federal crime. It's time for real, not fake reform. And that should include appointing consumer representatives and no more utility representatives and enacting laws to get utility well, influence out. With with DeWine facing re-election last year or next year and because of his ties to Randazzo, I think he'd get behind that. I mean, that he'd want to be just wash his hands of this so that he's no longer tied to it because he's the guy that named Randazzo without asking him, hey, by the way, have these guys got you in their pocket? Which the answer would have either been 
a lie by saying no or yes they've paid me a lot of money which we only found out recently you're listening to this week in the cle who got the endorsement in the cleveland mayor's race from the editorial board of cleveland.com and the plain dealer or johnston social media was buzzing yesterday people were surprised by what that endorsement had to say both who it supported and who it said not to support absolutely and I could be wrong, but is this the first time we've put it on our front page on, on Sunday for a plane dealer? If we've done it, it's been a very, very long time. So obviously that placement had showed the importance of this. And I, I was not in on this decision. I'm not part of the editorial board, but uh, you are Chris and Layla Tassi. So you'll have your own input to put in here. But this is the first mayoral election in 20 years without an incumbent. And so this is a really big deal. The editorial believes the candidate with a vision for this successful city that we wish to be is Justin Bibb. There's a lot of thoughtful reasons in this editorial, this endorsement but his collaborative approach to building the Cleveland economy. He's working really hard to understand the challenges of the city. He's he's young and experienced. I mean, he's 34. He's never held elected office, but he knows all the leaders of the nonprofits in town, business leaders, neighborhood leaders. He's really been doing his homework. And um, so this editorial strongly endorses Bibb, and then it also says, do not vote for Kucinich. It's pretty blunt, and it says he's not relevant for the future challenges of Cleveland. The uh, over the weekend, I saw some people on social media saying, hey, they're, they're saying all these bad things about Dennis Kucinich. But three years ago, they endorsed him in the Democratic primary for governor. And I think the difference there was the editorial board, one, he was running against Richard Cordray, which nobody was impressed with on the editorial board. And second was we needed a disruptor in Columbus. And if Dennis is anything, he's a disruptor. We've seen, based on what's happened with First Energy and Householder and, and the stagnation in the House and Senate, that they need some disruption. The, the other thing is, is Dennis is kind of uh, wild in his decision making, but the House and Senate would have reined him in. Uh, Layla Tassi, were you surprised by the reaction that we've seen to this? No, not really, because I had seen so frequently throughout the city that he was really gaining a lot of support. And I didn't think that people would react uh, negatively to our to our editorial endorsement at all. Not at all. I mean, Justin Bibb is innovative and smart and energetic and honestly impressive in every way, in my opinion. He, he left me with that impression from the first time I interviewed him back when he was the only candidate in the field. And I think what really struck me about him is that he is constantly combing the country looking for best practices and programs that are working elsewhere to address the kinds of social issues that we're facing here. And another thing that struck me was that he, leaders of local nonprofits have told me that he's reached out to them to really understand their operations and their needs and their challenges because he understands that many of these groups are the backbone of the city, that they fill in the gaps where city services cannot reach. And he understands the value of that. And and I think very importantly, he is he is Cleveland's son. You know, he's born and raised here on the city's east side by a mother and grandmother who sacrificed everything to make sure that he got the best possible education and became the man that he is today. He's, he's one of the greatest success stories in, in Cleveland. And I just think his moment has arrived. I'm, I'm so excited that we, uh, that we made the decision we did with our endorsement. Yeah. Yeah. I can't remember if it was unanimous or just near unanimous, but, but if it was unanimous, it was maybe one or two, but I think everybody uh, agreed the, the I think the most important thing that, that is stated is, his collaborative approach. Cleveland has a problem. I mean, as we saw with all of those 
those groups that were gathering a few years ago, Cleveland Rising and things, we're, we're siloed. And, and the business community, the nonprofit community, the neighborhoods, they don't work together. And, and he's the guy that can bring them together. If you look at the six candidates, he's, he's the one who has ties to them all. And I think Kucinich is the opposite. He's the, the guy that goes alone and doesn't really unify anybody. So we'll have to see. It's uh, the, the two that emerge in the uh, primary will then face off in the uh, November election. It's, uh, it really is wide open, I think, at the moment. I have no idea who's going to win this thing. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How might the recent news about quarantining Ohio students exposed to the coronavirus change the landscape on whether students will be wearing masks in the classroom this year? Well, Atasi, up till now, this conversation has been about whether schools should mandate masks. But what Mike DeWine said on Friday might get parents who have the option to be leaning more in favor of masks. Yes. So reporter Hannah Drought pulled quite a few Northeast Ohio school districts to find out how they were reacting to the guidelines uh, and and all of the news rolling out about the prevalence of the Delta variant and how scary this is. And she found that the policies really vary dramatically. But for the most part, it seems that the districts that had already decided to make masks optional haven't really wavered on that. Um, some schools have, have mandated all students and staff members mask up, including Shaker Heights and Cleveland Heights, Garfield Heights, East Cleveland City Schools, Akron Schools, too, will be wearing masks when the school year begins, regardless of, of their you know, vaccination status of, of students. Cleveland Metropolitan School District will mandate masks for all students, employees and school visitors for at least the first five weeks of school. And that includes in in the classroom setting, as well as indoor school events and and any activities. And then other districts don't plan to to make anyone wear masks. That includes Mayfield City Schools, Canton, Cuyahoga Falls, Hudson, the Rocky River School District. Uh, Their school board voted to suspend the mask policy in in June, making masks optional for, for everyone. But if let me interrupt you because I, I think you and Jane were off Friday and you might have missed this <laughs> I, at I DeWine's can... at DeWine's briefing on Friday. He said, hey, this is an this is individual choice. But if an unmasked, unvaccinated kid is exposed to the coronavirus, he's likely to have to quarantine at home for two weeks. That means right. the parents are going to have to take care of these kids at home for a couple of weeks, which we suspect parents might not leave that as an option anymore. Laura Johnston. Right. This was uh, announced in the 11 a.m. press conference on Friday and Laura Hancock covered it. And it was, you know, part of it. It wasn't the big news that he wanted. He was just basically pleading with people to, to get vaccinated. But yeah, it made me really think, like, if you have a mask on, they have shown they did scientific studies in the spring that you will not be likely to get COVID. So you will not have to quarantine if you're sitting three feet away from someone who's wearing a mask and you're wearing a mask and they get COVID. So yeah, I mean, I want my kids to wear a mask. And I think that this is going to make the school districts that even have made a decision rethink that decision. I know Rocky River came out on Friday and said, if you're taking the bus, you have to wear a mask regardless. <laughs> so that's that's their correction. Well, this I don't be OK I, on the I'm bus. We'll have a mandate. Not the only thing that we're going to hear. But yes, I heard from the transportation folks that you will be wearing a bus on in the um wearing a mask on the bus. But I do think this makes you really think because, yeah, even the districts that say, I don't care, we're not going to have a mask. 
what are you going to do when COVID starts overtaking your schools? I mean, this are, these are guidelines. Laura Hancock tried to nail this down. There's no mandate to make your kid quarantine from the state. But I can't I can't imagine a district thinks it's going to be responsible if it's not going to mandate that people quarantine well, when there is I, a case. Right. Think about that. Your, your kid gets exposed to the coronavirus who wasn't wearing a mask and isn't vaccinated. The school district's going to say you're good to go. The other thing is it'll apply to sports. Mm-hmm. I mean, if a kid is playing any of the high school sports and boom, you know, they, they miss two weeks. Right. Like, how does that affect their And all their extracurricular, career? think about the fall. I mean, we're going to have football games that keep people can go to probably after two years, like people are going to be into this. You're not going to be able to go to a homecoming dance or a football game or play your sports if you have COVID. So like you either get vaccinated or wear a mask or both. I think think this boils down again to what I said last week, which was that this is all about pressure from parents. And that right now weighs more heavily than anything else on school districts. They are so tired of hearing from parents complaining about these these mandates. And that is going to win the day. It will. But they're going to hear from both sides. I mean, so Mayfield said, you don't have to wear a mask. We got an email from a parent over the weekend who said, please do something. I don't I don't want this. I need them to mandate it so that not only my kid wears it, but the kid next to them wears it. So I think they're, they might be tired of hearing it, but they're going to hear furor from both sides. But, but the quarantine. If, yeah. if, you're, if you're one of those angry parents, Layla, saying, I don't want a mask, I don't want a mask. Why not? Say, not. Okay, I'm not one you're of those. Be, you're gonna no no no, but if you're gonna stay home for two weeks with your quarantining kid, you might say, Sorry, you're wearing right. a mask. And I can't afford the time. We've but all they're... been talking about when people can go back to work, and obviously the Delta variant has like changed that for office settings. But you know, there we're t- thinking about an entire new round of trying to figure out childcare and cancel this and you know, that postponed. And I think we thought we were done with it, but we're not. No, we're I not honestly done. think you're going to have parents sending their kids to school with COVID symptoms because they're not going to get their kids tested. So there you go. That's how they get around the quarantine. They have a cold, whatever, send them to school. No, no, no. It's not, it's not if they have symptoms, if they're exposed. So if a kid is diagnosed with COVID in your kid's classroom and your kid is not vaccinated or wearing a mask, your kid is very likely to be sent home for two weeks. That's that's the game changer that came out of Friday, and we'll have to see how. Both I know, but you're going to see react. so you're going to see so few kids diagnosed with COVID because nobody's going to have their kid tested. Well, you, I think you, if you come see, in, parents, there are so many parents and, out there who do not care about this anymore. They don't. Yeah. They're over it. They're done with the pandemic. Yeah, I think the school districts can kind of force a test if a kid is showing symptoms. We'll see. You're listening to this week in the CLE. So was the Vaximilian lottery a success after all? Jen Cahoon, not long after that lottery ended, a study came out that seemed flawed because it was based on some modeling and, and it made some suppositions that said it had no effect whatsoever. Mike DeWine, the governor of Ohio, took issue with it immediately. Now we have a more recent study that looks like it had more rigor. What did it show? Yeah, this is from Harvard University, and and yeah, they I guess it was more rigorous, but it suggests that this lottery was in fact successful in getting more than a hundred thousand additional Ohioans to to get a vaccine for COVID. So, um, and as you said, yeah, the governor thought that that previous um, uh, study, you know, was flawed. The the Harvard study used official COVID case and vaccination data from the CDC and Democrat demographic. 
data from the Census Bureau. But um, anyway, it, it's, you know, how could you sort of fault DeWine, I mean, for trying something? Because it's so imperative to, to get people uh, vaccinated, you know, and I, I mean, yes, it, this study said it cost about $49 per person, um, vaccinated, but, um, you know, and it did note that even at the end of the lottery, you know, a majority of Ohioans remained unvaccinated. So there's, there's an urgency to, you know, getting to continuing these efforts and DeWine, as, as we talked about on Friday, had this, um, briefing just, really pleading with the local health authorities saying, yeah, you know, your communities, you, you know, what's right. You should, you know, come up with the kind of incentives that are going to get people to get the shot. Well, in in that light, if it was 49 bucks per vaccinated person, why don't we just give people 50 bucks to get vaccinated? (laughs) (laughs) Well, they're trying that in some areas. In fact, they're giving like a hundred dollar gift cards. And in some areas, I think that's, that's working out well. But um, as I said, DeWine said, each community is different and he thinks, you know, they can, they can figure it out at the local level. So. Okay. You're listening to this week in the CLE. With the Cleveland Indians seeking a massive infusion of tax dollars into the Cleveland baseball stadium, will the recent announcement of the name change to the Guardians be a help or a hindrance in getting needed government approvals? Laura Johnston, we did wonder whether they had to change the name, announce the name change before they came with their hat in hand for hundreds of millions of tax dollars. That's what happened. The the name change was announced, what, two weeks before the announcement of the stadium. Mm -hmm. They say it's complete coincidence. And we took a look at how that could affect the process. What did we find? Yeah, I think this is fascinating. So Hannah Drown interviewed two experts on this, on marketing and psychology. And they said that fans' embrace of the name, which largely has been, and the end of this anxiety about what the name will be, when it would be announced, could mean more support for the public dollars because it was well-received and it made supporters feel really good. Um, Then they're more likely to accept it. Also, it's kind of increasing the the Indians being in the news. Obviously, it's the season. They're always in the sports news. But it, it kind of just kept the them at the forefront of your mind. And so this, I don't obviously, two weeks ago when we saw the announcement on Twitter, it was a stirring video of Cleveland landmarks, including the Guardians of Traffic that inspired the name. And we have Tom Hanks narrating. He says, we hold tight to our roots and set our sights on tomorrow. This is our team that has stood with us our city for more than a century from old municipal to the corner of Carnegie. So think about it. They even included the stadium as part of the imagery, the powerful feel good imagery of this name change. So they created buzz, they're keeping it going and it keeps people interested. Yeah. And even for the, a large portion of the population doesn't want the name changed. And there were people that didn't like the guardian's name, but I don't think any of them want the team to leave. And so I don't, I don't see them using the name change as a reason to deny them the, the, uh, the tax help. There's a bunch of other factors that play into that. So interesting piece by uh, Hannah Drown. Check it out on cleveland.com. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Should Cleveland use some of its half-billion-dollar federal coronavirus windfall to fortify the police department? Leila Tassi, it's a fascinating question because there are a whole lot of people that worry that the police have become an occupying force in neighborhoods and don't want more police presence. And then there's a bunch of others that think we need more police because of how bad the violence has become. 
What did we find when we started asking this question? Well, so President Joe Biden had recently announced that the federal stimulus money could be used in cities to combat the violence epidemic by bolstering police forces, among other things. So our Stimulus Watch reporter Robin Goist considered the question, is that the best use of this money, which is this once in a lifetime windfall that has such transformative potential? In Cleveland, the issue is very much on the table, but the city is still in the process of gathering feedback from residents on how they'd like to see the money spent. Councilman Blaine Griffin told Robin that he's hearing residents ask that the money be spent on on innovative tools for public safety rather than necessarily hiring more officers whose salaries might be unsustainable once the money runs out in a couple years. One of those innovations is the star chase device, which tracks suspects rather than making cops chase them. And we all know how controversial and polarizing and potentially deadly those high-speed chases are. And the Cleveland Police Union didn't respond to Robin's questions about whether they were pushing for some of the funds to be spent on their needs. But the president of the Black Shield Association, which represents the the black officers in the department, said all the city's first responders could use new vehicles and better training. And he said he'd like to see some of the money go towards supporting maternity leave for pregnant officers, which I was very pleased to hear a a police officer say that. (laughs) But activists with groups like Black Spring CLE told Robin that the money would be better spent addressing the root causes of crime, building healthy communities and addressing inequity in education and joblessness and access to affordable fresh food and supporting mental health, things like that. And toward that end, a number of policy think tanks have suggested using the money on alternatives to traditional policing, like programs that assist people experiencing mental health crises or in need of some other intervention. Robin did a really great job weaving many voices into the story on this really important topic. So everyone who's listening, go check it out on cleveland.com. It's interesting that the city has had the half of that money in its bank account for probably, what, three months now with no clear indication on how it will be spent. It feeds into my my conspiracy theory that Kevin Kelly's waiting till it gets close <laughs> to election day to come in and spend a lot of money to make a lot of people happy. We'll, well have to uh, right. see. Well, one of the things that Robin told me recently was that actually, you know, we were kind of like rolling our eyes at how the cities are gathering this feedback from the public. We're like, well, come on, you don't know, you don't have any ideas. Like, why would you ask that? But it turns out that is actually a part. That's a requirement. Yeah, you're supposed to do money. that. You have to do it. So yeah, you have to a lot of basis. people. Yeah, it's just it's been a very slow process and it's kind of surprising because it's a big chunk of change. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. That'll do it for a Monday. Good stuff. Left a couple questions on the table. We'll try and get to later in the week. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Jane. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. <laughs>